When we were singing the psalm, it reminded me of uh, my second year in seminary. Everybody said, at least when I went to seminary, that your middle year is the worst year, spiritually, emotionally. And I was uh, feeling it in the Wisconsin bush. The ice was thick, the trees were bare, and I was thinking, boy, I'm not sure I want to continue on with this. But uh, we went to church three times a day at Neshota House, and so for even song, we always processed in. And we processed in, and I got into the, my choir stall, and we started even song. And after the opening sentences were sung, we sat to sing the psalms. And the first psalm was, Lord, remember David and all the troubles he endured. So I thought to myself, you know, if I hadn't been here, I never would have heard it. And it was an affirmation of something. This is why I raised it. It's not about me. It's about perseverance in the spiritual life. So when you feel dry, all of the great masters of the spiritual life in the Christian church have said you should persevere. And they're right. The other thing I hadn't planned to preach about, which I just want to mention, is that we had uh, a reading from the Revelation. And every time we read from the Revelation, I'm at pains to remind us that the book of Revelation is not a book predictive of what future events may occur with God and the world. In fact, I'm a subscriber to the view that has a substantial scholarly underpinning, and that is that what St. John the Divine was writing about has already happened. Has already happened. There's a term for that about which I cannot now remember that, that, that describes that. But when I, again, was in seminary, I read a commentary by George Caird, who wrote a wonderful book called The Language and Imagery of the Bible. And he describes in there what had occurred. Everybody knew what this was. Everybody knew what, it was, what they were talking about. So you and I don't need to unpack all the stuff about the, the with seven eyes and all that. So that takes a lot of unpacking. We don't need to do that. It's talking about the Roman Empire and God's way with the world and how Christian people respond in this way in the midst of suffering and adversity and how they reach and grasp and make part of their own personal history the promises of God. This is the feast of Christ the King, or more properly, the last Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Christ the King. So Episcopalians, in their typical fashion, do not require anybody to keep Christ the King, but the collect that Father Emerson sung and the readings are all the readings for Christ the King. This festival is observed, or this day is observed, by Roman Catholics, by Lutherans, and by Episcopalians. Its origin is in 1925, when Pope Pius XI promulgated the Feast of Christ the King, and it was celebrated on the last Sunday of October. And in 1970, Paul VI moved the feast from the last Sunday of October to the last Sunday of Pentecost. And since 1970, that's when we have been celebrating that feast. 
Now, here's the thing. For Americans, kings are not high on our list. We're not big king people, you know. In fact, although uh, Alexander Hamilton and a few others had hoped that George Washington might be made a king, and Washington had the presence of mind to, to refuse, although during his presidency, and in fact all during his life, he behaved like a king. Not because he thought of himself as a king, but because he had read as a boy uh, books about how a man comports himself in public. What is the public persona that we need to uh, put forward as uh, people who are gentlemen in those days? So that is why when you would pass by in a reception line, President Washington would never shake hands. He stood there like the king, like this. But we don't want kings. Washington didn't want a king. So how are we going to talk about Christ the king as an image? You know, what do we mean? So I think for us and for perhaps all Christians, uh, the best way to speak about this is the reign of Christ. What is the atmosphere that we speak of when we think about Christ the King. What kind of a world do we want to be in? How do we think about the values we have received from the life and teaching of Jesus, from his example? And what does it call Christian people to do in the world? What does it mean when we say that we wish to be Christian people in the world? Several years ago, by the way, this is not quite on the subject, but I hope I can connect it up. Um, a bishop in the Episcopal Church, who is now no longer a bishop in the Episcopal Church, but a bishop in some breakaway group, uh, preached a sermon at some organizational thing. And he said, you know what the problem with the Episcopal Church is today? The problem with the Episcopal Church today is that everybody believes in affirmation. We, on the other hand, believe in transformation. Now, the reason I mention this is that when we speak of the reign of Christ, how in the world can we separate the affirmative proclamation of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness and not believe and experience the reality that that produces in the human person and in communities that are faithful, transformation. They're not mutually exclusive. And when we think about the reign of Christ, we're thinking in those transformative terms. Uh, N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham and then resigned and is the professor, a professor of New Testament at the University of St. Andrew in Edinburgh, wrote a book recently called How God Became a King. And here's what he says in his book. You'll be hearing more about this. I'm reading it right now. So that's why I'm preaching about it. He said, you know, a lot of times in, a, in, the, in Western Christianity, certainly in the United States and in parts of Europe, uh, the focus of the biblical 
study, the focus of the liturgical preaching has always centered itself or tended to in the writings of St. Paul. It's true that the Gospels are read and mentioned, but the way in which we talk about the Gospels are in a sort of Pauline sense because we always connect it back to the key themes of what St. Paul wrote about in his letters. So what that means is that when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and today John, we are reading them sort of like this. We read about the beginning, Jesus' birth, and his incarnation, the affirmation that Jesus now is a human being in whom, if God were a human being walking around, he would be just like him. So we're focusing on the incarnation, God becoming a man. And then we fast forward to the end of the gospel and we talk about the atonement, what has been accomplished on the cross and how we have been saved from the judgment of God. And we seem to sit lightly on a whole lot of stuff in the middle that is about the reign of Christ. And what Christ is talking about in terms of how human beings are to respond to the divine initiative. And this is very important because in John's gospel today, we're going to hear some conversation from Jesus about the world. And what does it mean when we speak about the world? You and I enter the process of connecting to this middle part of the Gospels through the sacramental life of the church, the outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace through our baptism. And today we read about Jesus who is before Pilate. And Pilate begins by asking him a question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus in so many words says, who's been talking about me to you? And then he says, my kingdom is not from this world. Other translations in the past have translated that as my kingdom is not of this world, which presupposes the view that suggests that there is another world somewhere else that we're going to become part of. But when you say, my kingdom is not from this world, it really is distancing itself from the values of this world. And for Jesus, what he meant when he talked about this world was the world organized on the basis of unbelief. When we say unbelief, we do not mean merely a a perpetual overweening skepticism about the great truths of Christianity. We mean, in fact, a great smug confidence in our own abilities. The idea that in some ways, through our own technical expertise, through the use of our own initiative, through entrepreneurial zeal, through a variety of other things, we can, in fact, do it ourselves. We're okay. So we don't need to worry about a lot of superstitious nonsense. 
about the unseen world. Have you ever stopped to think on a daily basis how much unseen things govern your life? How your memories, your past, your emotional, spiritual, and mental condition interiorly, how much that influences the way you come to the world. All of those issues that get built up from childhood and are stored in the body and in the central nervous system. And that the spiritual life is somehow involved in freeing us from the tyranny of those internal states, from the false self, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Those are the governing principles by which you and I live on a daily basis. All things necessary for human, human beings and at the same time can get out of whack in, a, in the blinking of an eye. So when Jesus speaks of the world, that's the world he's talking about. But elsewhere in the Gospels, in this middle part, he sends the disciples into the world. And he understands that when they go into the world, that they are going to be able to have transformative effect on relationship, on other people's spiritual lives by virtue of commending to them the practical wisdom that they themselves possess internally, but also can hear from them about how to live a life more congruent with God's purposes for them. And so Jesus is really speaking about this world, not somewhere else. You know, a lot of Christianity has been devoted to this for centuries, speaking in these terms. So it's, it's, it would be easy to be confused about this, wouldn't it? But what we discover is that maybe thinking about some other world isn't quite as old as we think it is. And we have just been thinking about it in that way because... So in addition to this, Jesus says, if we're in the world and wish to express the values of the gospel or his teaching, then we're also to be concerned about the truth. G.K. Chesterton, the great writer on Christian subjects in the early part of the 20th century, said, nobody can know the truth. All of us must seek the truth. And that is part of the Christian faith and life, to seek the truth. And what does the truth mean for Jesus and for those who followed him? It means seeing in real history God's saving, redemptive work. You know, sometimes we set our sights too high. We think God's saving and redemptive work is going to be some kind of Star Trek moment. When in fact, it may have more to do with the quotidian aspects of our lives, everyday living. And the progress that is made spiritually, emotionally and mentally as we achieve some greater sense of serenity in the midst of a lot of turmoil and difficulty. But we get glimpses of the truth.
And all of us should be concerned about continuing to seek the truth. Not from the purpose of finding some gimmick in order to be able to connect immediately to the truth, but to be the best human being you can be. And to look back and say, you know, there have been times in my life, even if it was for a split second, that I have seen very clearly God's purposes for me. And so on Christ the King, our emphasis is on the reign of Christ. What kind of a field are we talking about? I mean this uh, as a relational field in the world between human beings, right? So we're talking about the whole of our emotional connections. We're talking all about how we think about those connections and how we determine to bring greater health to all of those kinds of things. Dr. Edwin Friedman used to say that more and more research on the brain tells us that feeling and thinking occur simultaneously. We have almost like a liquid nervous system. So that means what you feel is important, but it's also important what you're thinking about what you're feeling. And many times we confuse the two. We don't know which it is. I mean, I remember an age when people were supposed to always lead with, I think, don't lead with, I think that, but it's, I feel that. No, you think and feel at the, sa at the same time. And so that helps you make some sense, or maybe greater sense, out of this great mystery we call God and his relationship with human beings. This week, give thanks for being part of the reign of Christ. See if in big and small ways you can do something to advance this reign even one inch closer to where it ought to be. Amen.